today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health applauded the distance we've come in the last few weeks, but says it's not enough to reopen the province. So what kind of numbers is he hoping to see before that happens? I haven't got a definite metric right now. It certainly will be well below 1,000, uh, but I think that is achievable. Achievable because we have something that we didn't have before. As compared to the first and second wave, um, the big thing we have is vaccination. He says that we need to stay the course on the stay-at-home order and to keep getting people vaccinated in order to get below 1,000 cases a day and stay there. Dave Woodard, Global News. There you have it. Uh, and on that note, uh, Ontario's case count today, uh, the lowest it has been in weeks. Uh, 2,073 uh, new COVID-19 cases, 15 have uh, passed away uh, from COVID-19. So uh, again, even just uh, compared to yesterday, uh, where we were sitting at uh, 27-116, uh, that's a significant decrease. Uh, which is good news. But again, it's not just the lowering of uh, the cases and the new case counts. It's also about how it's affecting uh, uh, ICU units. And we have to see a uh, an emptying of AC unit, uh, ICU units before uh, we can uh, really relax uh, any sort of uh, protocol that we've got. And that's obviously going to be the big question uh, coming up in... Um, well, just under 10 days when the stay-at-home order uh, expires in Ontario. However, uh, yesterday information coming out saying, uh, suggesting that uh, it will in fact be uh, extended, although at this point there has been no formal announcement on this. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Some pretty good news uh, today. Uh, obviously, we're seeing case counts come down to the 2073 uh, notch, which uh, is great news. But again, it, it's about our ICU and uh, capacity and, and where it is at. Uh, but your thoughts on where we are? We're, are, we're starting to see, I, I guess, uh, these leveling off. Is this vaccine and lockdown or a combination of both? Well, I mean, I feel very privileged that for once I get to be on your show and share positive news. Yeah. We're definitely in the right direction. You know, there's hope on the horizon. I mean, it's just such such promising things to hear from the province and the reports. Yes, like you said, the ICU units are still in a bit of a critical uh, situation, and we need to keep a close eye on their capacity. However, the numbers are reducing, the case numbers are reducing, and also more importantly, Scott, the number of people getting vaccinated is higher. So we have administered more than 6 million doses of the vaccine now in the province. This is great news. There are long lineups to get vaccinated. People seem, you know, if you talk to anybody out there, your friends or your colleagues, you almost hear it around that. Everybody's saying they booked the vaccine in this mm-hmm. date or that date. This is all promising news. I suspect that by July, uh, we're ahead of our schedule, that by July we should have a much better summer this year than we did last year even. Uh, obviously, in hot zones, anybody 18 plus uh, can get the jab there. Uh, and with May, uh, we have seen a tremendous uptick in the amount of vaccine that has come into the country. Uh, 50% of what's in Ontario is zeroed in on hot spots. Are we starting to see a dent with that yet? Yeah, we are. I mean, the more people that I mean, the reason why hotspots were a very targeted area is because that's where the numbers told us that uh, a higher rate of COVID-19 transmission happened in those communities. So the, the more aggressive we are in the vaccinating the hotspots, the better we are overall. And then we need to expand that eligibility to people under the age of 18 and to all areas within Canada. Because, you know, we've always said this repeatedly, unless the entire country and the entire world 
is safe from COVID-19. We will never be safe. It's a collective effort. It's not an individual effort. What about the stay-at-home order uh, coming up, uh, expiring May, sorry, yes, May 20th, uh, government suggesting it will be extended? Your thoughts? Well, rightly so. I think all of us experts have re-urged the government to really consider extending them. And let me explain to the public why that matters. I know none of us want it to be extended. Trust me, I'm one of the first people that said, I cannot wait for things to open up. I have a huge list of things I need to grab from stores that are waiting <laughs> for things to calm down. However, you know, we've done so well and we are doing incredibly well. What we don't want to happen is another disaster that happened previously where we open up too soon and then we're facing with the risk of the variant. So to be clear with the public, I think one of the reasons why the government is and, and, and are basing their recommendation on what experts are telling them to extend the order is because we're worried about the variants. We have no, Ontario has not reported whether the Indian variant that we know is the completely collapsed, the health system in India and the, the country is in, in dire need of support right now. We don't want that to happen in Ontario. So we're keeping a close eye on the Indian variant. However, we do have the UK variant, the Brazilian and the South African variant in our communities on Ontario. So I think that is why part of the reason why they're delaying the stay-at-home order. And also because we're, we're, we want to get as many people vaccinated so that we can have a beautiful summer. So that when July comes around, I actually suspect that they will probably lift the stay-at-home order sometime in June in preparation for July. However, I will want to say one thing that's very important. I've been hearing business people and you know people who own small businesses saying, hey, we're frustrated because we want to have a plan. Like, you know, you're not giving us an indication of how we should plan. So I will mm-hmm. say that the government does need to act on that, Scott. I think they need to give a clear indication for businesses to say, you know, this is when you should expect to open. If I had to make an assessment, uh, and this is a guess, I would say it's about around July time is when we should expect to see wide reopening of our economy. We did hear Dr. Williams say yesterday that he'd like to see the case count go down below 1,000 and ICU somewhere in the area of 300. I guess across the province, we're up over 800 right now. Yeah, and that's that's about right. I mean, if you look at other countries and how they've reopened and the evidence from how they've catered their health policies, that's around the, the soft spot for a number. Because what does that indicate for us? I mean, forget about the numbers. What the, what's the significance of that number? The significance is that vaccinations are working. People are still practicing safe distancing and measures. And I will say that, you know, what's really important to make a point of it now, which I don't think a lot of us have made it clear yet, that if when we do reopen, which is very soon, you know, in a, in a few weeks from now, we should, you know, in a, at least a month from now, we should have to see reopening. We're still expecting people to wear face masks. We're still expecting people to have some form of social distancing in place. However, we will be able to reopen things on a larger scale. And the reason why I'm saying that is that, you know, not everybody would have had two doses by July, right? Like mm-hmm. the majority of us would have only had our first dose. And we know from the evidence that first dose only provides a certain percentage of protection, not the protection that we ideally want. And so until everybody gets two doses, then we can see where, you know, you might not be able to have to wear a face mask in public. Yeah, valid point. Eh? We still have to get to the, the second hurdle here. Um, uh, with numbers dropping like this, and I'm assuming as these more vaccines come in and more and more people are vaccinated, these numbers are going to continue to go down even over the next week or two prior to the long weekend. There's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on government to to lower these restrictions. 
That for sure. And, and let's and let's not forget, Ahmad. That's how we got to this in the first place. You know, I, I remember during the first and second waves, the the mayors of Haldeman all sent a note to the government saying, you know, we got to follow the science. We need to open up. And then, of course, of course, a few weeks later, we were uh, on another lockdown. So there is going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on government to open this back up as we see these numbers decline. And and anecdotally, we know more are getting vaccinated. Exactly, and we can't forget. I mean, Doug Ford. The premier's tearful, you know, speech not that long ago, where he admitted that, you know, in, in retrospect, the Shiva probably kept things under lockdown because we mm. saw what happened. When we have evidence of this, and you know, it's the variants that we're very much concerned about. We don't want them to take a hold on our community. We're aggressively vaccinating. The rollout plans have been incredible. The response to vaccination has been very positive, and hopefully, it continues like that with more outreach events the communities to get people more vaccinated in the meantime we need to stay the course and it's actually reassuring that it, it sounds for once that the government is actually following very closely the advice of the experts that are providing it you know that there doesn't seem to be a discordance between what the experts are saying and all the experts have said please prolong the stay-at-home order we're still a bit concerned about our icu capacity and we're also concerned about the variants so the longer we can delay this a little bit you know the better it is overall and in the same time, businesses, we can't forget about businesses, especially small ones, who are saying, okay, if you're going to extend this, please tell me when I'm supposed to be opening so I can plan. That, I, I think that we can't forget the importance of doing that. And it needs to go at the same time with following the scientific adva- advice is to give reassurance to businesses of when they can actually reopen, give them a date and let them plan accordingly. So uh, on that note, what would you say to them? Uh, again, like Dr. Williams said yesterday, ICUs down below 300, uh, 1,000 new cases uh, a day. When do you think we're going to get to that point? Well, I think if they base it on the projection models and the evidence from other crises and our own and how we, how we responded to COVID-19, I would suspect, and again, this is a speculation, it's not based mm-hmm. on hard data, July. And so yeah. give Give yourself, give the businesses more time than you think. So, you know, they get, like you said, they're under a lot of pressure to reopen things very quickly. So they might, they might be, you know, considering June. I would say go on the safer side, but at least in this way, you've reassured businesses about what time they have. You know, instead of saying June and then come June and you're like, oh, actually, it's going to be July. Give them the July date because you know by then we would have vaccinated more of our population. We would have been, you know, uh, have a better understanding of the variants and where they are and how we can respond to them. And we would have reduced the capacity and the stress on our ICUs. Uh, Another question I wanted to ask in regard to um, Health Canada has approved this for 12 uh, plus uh, Pfizer vaccine for 12 plus. The United States, the FDA followed suit just a few days uh, later. Uh, now all of a sudden it's like, well, when are we going to get the kids vaccinated? Should the kids get vaccinated uh, before they go to school? But although we are seeing lots of supply coming in in May, we're still not to the point where we can just open up the doors and let everybody get a vaccine. Um, so where do the kids fit in in this rollout? Do we continue uh, going down in ages and in through hotspot communities, or do we start vaccinating kids 12 plus? That's what we're trying to pay close attention to, to see when that will actually happen for the, the kids 12 plus. I suspect that there's going to be a lot of pressure for them to do that before schools even reopen, right? Because I think everybody can agree that schools, everybody wants schools to reopen in the fall. Uh, and so I think there's going to be massive pressure on the government to figure out a way to make sure of this. However, I will remind everybody that Canada is number one country in the world with the most number of contracts. 
uh, an agreement with manufacturers of vaccine. There will be a day in Canada where we have more vaccine than we know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that we can't forget of that. You know, that, you know, if you recall sometime this time last year, you know, Canada made incredible steps to secure this contract. And yes, they fell through in terms of delays. However, the contracts are still in place. Uh, and we always keep saying that there will come that time when we have so much vaccine that everybody can get vaccines whenever they want. And so I think they're anticipating for the supply to come. Uh, right. right now, the focus does remain on the hotspots, the individuals who are highest risk, the adult population. And then I think they will be moving down the age groups. So uh, many are, are saying, well, do we vaccinate the, the kids or do we give adults the, or adults the second dose? But you're saying by the time that uh, comes to fruition, hopefully we will have enough for the second dose and we won't exactly. have to be deciding. Yeah, Exactly. And also, we, we must give the second dose. The evidence is very clear on the second dose. It's not a choice. We can't just, you know, we're already delaying it. We've already maximized the delay between the dosages. And the manufacturers of the vaccine have been very explicit in saying, in order for you to get the, the safety margins that you are hoping for, you cannot keep delaying the second dose. You need to give it. And so my concern is that if we further delay, we have to remind the public that some people receive their first doses, especially healthcare providers, way back in December. Uh, yeah. We're in May now. And so, like, how much longer can we delay the second dose? And I think, you know, we've already booked people now when they go get their first dose. They're getting booked for their second dose. So what do you do then? Do you, do you, if you want to change that second dose, are you going to contact all those people to say, hey, we're changing your second dose? I suspect that will not be the case. I think the government will stay on course to provide the second dose as they planned. Uh, obviously, lots of Pfizer and Moderna coming in, AstraZeneca. There's no real timeline as to when the next shipment uh, is going to be sent. Alberta, as a result, has decided not to give out any more first doses of AstraZeneca, but instead to keep what they have to give those uh, AstraZeneca uh, patients their second dose. What do you think is going to happen with the second dose of AstraZeneca? Uh, should we be holding that for the second dose or uh, mixing and matching the way, obviously, there's trying to study that in the UK at this point? Excellent question. And it's definitely a study that's happening right now in the UK. We're looking at mixing and matching AstraZeneca with Pfizer and Moderna. The preliminary results out of that study are positive and they indicate that that's possibly what can, might be able to happen that you're able to mix and match the vaccine. Uh, and that will be a game changer. Why? Because in Canada, we, we, ha- we will have the most vaccines of all the manufacturers, right? We were able to secure deals with AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, and others. Um, and so we actually lost track of how many people we have contracts with. And so that's going to be really critical in our planning in the future is that, you know, can we mix those doses? Because we will have ample ones from one over the other. Uh, and so Canada definitely will be paying very, very close attention to the study in the UK and the results that will come out of it. It would be interesting to know if those who have already received the AstraZeneca, such as myself, if uh, if the people out there that have had AstraZeneca want a second dose of AstraZeneca or if they want to wait for uh, an mRNA vaccine, a Pfizer or a Moderna. We, because yeah, obviously I, Pfizer's I, Pfizer's played a huge role with NASI in 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 hesitation of all of this. Is it better just to take it off the plate? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point, Scott. I think that we haven't really heard many reports of people not taking the vaccine based on their preference. And so many of us, when we booked our appointments, we actually didn't know what we're getting, right? We, we showed up. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you went to the pharmacy that we knew were only supplying AstraZeneca, but if you showed up in a hot spot and you were getting your vaccine, you, you kind of knew that you're most likely getting Moderna or Pfizer, but didn't know which one you got. And there is this like, 
social media, you know, very active social media campaigns around Pfizer being better than Moderna even. I mean, there's that competition that's happening. So I think in the future when we have more vaccine, this will play a key factor. And something we need to address now is that how do we combat misinformation about the different vaccines so we can help people make the right choice? Because as more vaccines become available, people might get more choosy about which vaccine they want to take. Uh, obviously, good news today, and we are seeing the light at the uh, at the end of a tu- at the end of the tunnel here, Ahmad. But obviously, protocol is still playing an important role even through the summer. What's your message to us that are getting very excited and even have had our first shot? Well, keep getting that keep that excitement level high. Have you know make some exciting plans come July and August and September when the weather is nice and sunny. I mean, the good news is that it's still a bit chilly out, so we're not missing out on being outside. But, you know, sunshine and warm weather is around the corner. And with that, hopefully we'll come reduction in our case numbers of COVID-19 in our hospitals and ICU and a chance for all of us to gather outside in a safe, you know, environment. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, uh, talking about COVID-19 vaccines and the good news and light at the end of the tunnel. But, of course, got to keep with the protocol until we cross the finish line. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. So we've been living uh, within a uh, global pandemic, COVID-19. Some people uh, completely out of work. Other people having the the luxury of working from home uh, and as a result have perhaps been able to save some money. Now looking to uh, purchase something. Uh, We saw home renovations go through the roof during this COVID-19 pandemic. Also, people's interest in cars, because you can't go anywhere. You can't uh, travel. You can't spend your money on vacation. So a, a lot of people started looking at cars. Uh, then, just like with toilet paper and lumber, uh, we see shortages and prices go through the roof. Uh, in regard to uh, new vehicles and used vehicles uh, right the way across the country. What has the global pandemic done to the auto industry? Let's bring in Michael Manjuris, professor at the Ted Rogers School of uh, Management with Ryerson University and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. So if I want if, if I wanted to buy a new car right now, how difficult is it to get one? It depends on the vehicle you're talking about. Um and that's because that you know what what you just said there's a whole series of of factors that are affecting the avail- availability of cars at the retail level at the dealership itself so it would not be as easy as it once was because inventory levels are down uh, they're down about 25% from a year ago but perhaps more importantly um the ability to negotiate a price is almost non-existent now as dealers are staying fairly firm on the prices they're asking and they're achieving them for all the reasons you just mentioned uh, kind of like buying a bicycle during a pandemic or getting sporting equipment or anything of that nature, I guess. Will we see these prices level off post-pandemic, or is this the new norm? No, I, I, the chance of them leveling off, I think, is, is very good, and that is dependent on whether we're able to get our supply chain management systems back on track the way they were before the pandemic. I mean, a large part of what we're seeing here is because um, it, it's a perfect storm. We have an increase in demand because people have, at least a lot of people have had the opportunity to save money and they're not spending them on travel, as you mentioned a moment ago. We have disruptions in distribution. It's taking a lot longer for finished vehicles to cross borders as they get processed through customs simply because of 
you know, COVID, there aren't as many people to do the same tasks takes longer. But perhaps just as importantly, in the production level, um, companies aren't able to produce these vehicles as fast as they could before because of shortages of material like um, semiconductors and, and, you know, small computer chips that are required in our vehicles today, but also because people are getting sick and because, again, doing the tasks at the production level are taking longer. So lower uh, supply, uh, longer uh, distribution to get it to market results in less vehicles being available at a time when we have increase in demand. That won't last forever. And I think when the pandemic itself subsides, we'll see things get more to nor- more closer to normal and we'll start to see more availability in terms of inventory and therefore an opportunity for us to negotiate price once again. We heard uh, a few months ago that a lot of this was to do not only with supply disruption simply because of a global pandemic, but also, as you mentioned, the semiconductor shortage, computer chips. uh, And obviously, it's not just the auto industry that's using these. That's correct. And in fact, the demand worldwide is really spiked in all kinds of industries. And there's really only two major suppliers at the moment globally. Um, you know, one in Samsung, for example, um, South Korea, but there's also a, a major one in, J- in Japan as well. Um, added to this is the trade tensions between the United States and China. And as a result of some of the um, barriers imposed by the U.S. government, some Chinese companies decided to hoard, in other words, buy in advance of their actual usage, um, you know, a lot of these semiconductors from the suppliers in South Korea and Japan. So they have sort of taken on a lot of the supply and purchased it, and they're holding on to it in China for their own use. But as a result, the rest of the world is facing this shortage. And that ultimately will lead to the same price increases we're seeing in the automotive industry. How did they see the shortage coming, and yet why didn't others do that? That's a good question that I'm afraid I really can't answer. I just think that it was a, it was a conservative strategy. We call it of survival. In other words, ensuring their own supply doesn't... Um, fall short by purchasing and putting into their own uh, warehousing initially. Uh, They were just more astute to do it ahead of the rest of us. Uh, And are they just storing those for future uh, manufacturing, future what have you, or are they designated for projects? Is it part of their supply chain? It is part of their supply chain. and And what they've done, they have a longer view, if you wish, of their production cycle. So they've purchased a lot of these and simply put them, as I say, in a warehouse and holding them in inventory, but the purpose is so that they can continue to use just-in-time manufacturing processes. They have these uh, these materials, and they can use them just in time when they want to put them in final assembly. For example, um, you know, their own vehicle production, as a, you know, as a matter of fact, but also for personal electronics, um, some of the military use that they require. They wanted to have an assurity of supply, and, and thus they took uh, the step ahead of the rest of us to make sure that happened. Computer chips, the new PPE? Kind of in a way. Um, it, you know, it's also the advancement of technology. What we're demanding in our vehicles today, especially as we move forward to electrical vehicles, is, is completely different in terms of what we used to demand back in the mm-hmm. 1970s or 80s, where, you know, what we wanted in vehicles in those days was, you know, certain comfort features like a nice radio or good leather or better power in our engine. What we want today is better connectivity and fuel efficiency and safety features, all of which require some form of computer system. And as soon as you say computer system, then we need semiconductors. 
Uh, COVID-19 has certainly made us aware of how dependent we are on others and our lack of self-sufficiency now. What does this say about self-sufficiency, and how do we fix this? Uh, well, the first, I, I agree with exactly your statement, and our discussion here on uh, related to vehicles, uh, is also sort of being illustrated in the energy industry where there's, you know, news of, of pipelines being shut down, one mm-hmm. in the States, Colonial Pipeline, um, which supplies 40% of the energy needs of the Northeast U.S. It's been shut down for four days now. And, and the fact that 40% of energy needs goes through one company clearly identifies a weakness in how energy is, is distributed. We have the same here in Canada. The Enbridge pipeline, which comes through Michigan, is being threatened with a shutdown tomorrow. And close to that same number, 40% of our oil needs in Ontario and Quebec come through that one pipeline. This is an example of a dependency on one or two major sources where, in the past, we diversified our sources. We had many refineries, for example, throughout Ontario and Quebec and parts of the northeast U.S. And what it's saying is that we need to sort of uh, re-examine how we've decided to final products and things like energy across North America so that we are not vulnerable to uh, disruptions, whether it be by nature or by politics or by threats. And I, you were talking- and I was just going to say our federal government, for example, really needs to look into this um, in the coming years. It's funny because uh, obviously everyone's talking about the line uh, line five pipeline today because it's scheduled to close tomorrow. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen. This is all in court. Uh, but I remember talking to uh, guests of mine from Alberta when we would simulcast shows between East and West, and they were saying months ago, "Is Ontario not concerned about line five shutting down?" And nobody seemed to know about it. Nobody seemed to care. Uh, and, and now we see, uh, uh, the government now, sp- you know, sort of changing its tune and sticking up for, uh, this pipeline and this industry. Uh, are, are we taking all of this, uh, all of this, whether it's energy or not, t- for granted? I, I believe so. I think the, the response has been a little bit lackadaisical. I've been talking about, uh, line five for a year now. Um, be- because myself and colleagues in industry that I have, we've been chatting about, uh, the rumblings that were coming out of the government of Michigan about what they were thinking of doing. And uh, we were trying to get our industry and our government on board to sort of take take a proactive approach to this so it didn't come to sort of a last-day negotiations that we're seeing now. But this is also true for industry, um, as, as we were mentioning before, the automotive industry. They, they now require different kinds of things. The current... Um, uh, major issue that's impacting their distribution is COVID, but it may be something different in the future. We have to start looking at how we distribute, how we manufacture and distribute and meet demand in a more diversified way than simply relying on one or two sole sources. And I, I think that's how we used to be here in Canada, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we started to get away from it a little bit more in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And I think what we're starting to see is, as I said earlier, uh, an opportunity, if you wish, where we have to revisit this and start to look at how we're going to better diversify it to reduce the risk of a disruption. Uh, we certainly know that this government isn't really interested in in research and development of fossil fuels and and or pipelines or any of that sort of thing. Uh, do you feel they're just letting this run its course? I feel that what they're doing is they're they're looking to rely on law or treaties to save us. 
And, and in, as you mentioned a moment ago, um, it is unlikely Line 5 will shut down because the whole issue is in, in a, a state court in Michigan. But there also are federal treaties between ourselves and the United States, which also makes it unlikely that it will just automatically be shut down because the governor's placed an order. But relying on that solely, I don't think, is the best thing. I think, as you mentioned before, how do we fix it? I think if we truly want to fix it so we don't find ourselves here again sometime in the future, is we do have to start look at diversifying the economy and investing in, um, you know, uses of fossil fuels or ways of producing it without hurting the environment or reducing how we hurt the environment. So that ultimately we translate into a new so-called green energy type of uh, economy or we produce technology that helps the world to do the same kind of thing. But there has to be some transition from where we are now and what we've been doing in the past. But we don't seem to talk about that. We always seem to present an either-or discussion. We have to shut this off now, and we have to do this. Whereas, you know, I, I've yet to find an expert who isn't going to who hasn't said this is like a twenty to fifty year uh, transition. Um, but it seems that some have convinced people that these taps just need to be shut off now, and somehow we can survive that. And I believe that that's more of a political kind of decision making that that it's it's popular so let's do it because i'll get reelected. yeah and i don't think that that's the right approach i think that whatever we whatever this transition is i don't believe it's 20 or 50 years i really believe that through human ingenuity we can do it a lot sooner but we have to start we have to get get to it past words and into action and a lot of this technology is out there and can be refined as we move forward just look at electric cars electric cars not so long ago you know, only could get you between 60 and 90 kilometers on a charge. And now we're looking at numbers around 400 and 500 kilometers on a charge. And that's because we, we put emphasis and focus on the research on how to do that. So we can do it if there's that political will and industrial uh, support to do it. But we've got to start. Michael Mangeris with us, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, uh, talking about shortages in computer chips for all products, including vehicles and what we use to drive them around. Uh, and, of course, the closure of Line 5. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. And you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global stream on Stack TV